Thanks, Chris. Hey, friends, how's it going? Pretty good? Yeah, that's good. Um, if you're new, my name is, uh, is Rich, one of the pastors here. I'm the family pastor at Linworth, and uh, I'm excited to be bringing this part of uh, the message that we've been walking through 2 Samuel this summer. Last summer, we worked through, uh, through 1 Samuel, so um, yeah. You know, last week, you know what struck me today? Uh, it was just glancing over with everybody here. We actually have a couple of couples here that just got married, and they're here for, you know, it's so cool that uh, they just got, so, anyways, welcome guys, glad that you're here with us, but, uh, so last week, Pastor Nick, he finished up his message in chapters 8 through 10 uh, by telling us five characteristics of God's chosen king, is one who administers justice, who keeps promises, extends kindness, removes shame, and defeats enemies. And so through both books of Samuel, we have this picture of David being drawn for us. As Pastor, as Pastor Chris mentioned in an earlier message, this picture is being drawn as, as David being as one of the greatest men that had ever lived. And of all the great leaders of the Old Testament, David is among the greatest. He's a warrior and king. He was a composer and a conqueror, a unifier, bringing kingdoms together. And God said that he was a man after his own heart. And so great was David that among the most well-known well -known titles of Jesus was son of David. And so we have a buildup of this point to David and who he is. Albeit, there's some warning signs along the way if we have paid attention uh, as to a part of his character here. And then we turn the page, and it's as if we've moved into another time dimension or parallel universe where, like, who is this guy? It's like we have two Davids. We see this one David where, where uh, he's doing wonderful, amazing things. And then we turn here into chapter 11 and chapter 12, and we begin to see another side of David, and as I said, there were hints of it a little bit earlier. And so we discover that, like almost all the great figures in the Bible, David was a man who was struggled and he was flawed. Yet God reaches into David's life through his confusing, flawed life, and he brings us a beautiful picture of God's grace. And so that's why I titled today's message David's Life a Metaphor for God's Grace. And so, let's continue, and uh, let's begin by praying. Father God, thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, your Spirit would speak to us, it would teach us. Lord, that you would um, help us wrestle through your Word here in a way that changes us, and that you would get all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles. Uh, we are not going to put all of the uh, Bible verses on the screen. There's too many of them, a couple of chapters worth. The poor guys who do the, the slides, they have to just keep clicking one after another. So open your Bibles, page 262 in your pew Bible. And a lot of you have a cell phone has the Bible on it, or you have uh, tablets or whatever. So give you just a second to get there. And it's uh, chapter 11. And uh, let's go, let me just go ahead and begin here uh, by reading verse 1. It says that in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath, but David remained at Jerusalem. And so even in this very first verse here, um, there's usually some discussion if you study or read some commentaries that... Um, as we get into the story, the story is about David and Bathsheba, which most all of us know about, that uh, one of the reasons possibly that the story came about was because David stayed home and he didn't go out to battles when kings usually go out uh, to battles. And uh, it's a reason that he sinned, that maybe he should have been there at the battle. And uh, it makes it out at times that, you know, uh, teachings on being idle and having nothing to do, and that can lead to going into sin. Um, I mean, maybe, possibly, but I, I don't, myself, personally, my own opinion, I don't necessarily buy that. Um, 
He has a whole kingdom to run. Uh, they're not always at battle. There's times of the season when they don't go out to battle because it's, it's rainy, sloppy there in that area. And, so, uh, and when he's there, he has all kinds of things to do to run the kingdom. And, uh, and so the underlying message sometimes is given here that, that that's why he fell into sin. And maybe it, it would have never happened. Um, I'm not so sure, personally, that that's um, really the right narrative uh, in there. But it is, at times, maybe you've heard that taught. Let's go ahead and read uh, verses 2 and 3 here. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, now this is like the smartest guy in the group here. We don't know who he is. Of all of history, we don't know who this guy is. But one said something here. And what did he say? Is this, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Two of David's mighty men. When David found out who Bathsheba was, the daughter of Eliam, one of David's top, as you can find out in, in later in 2 Samuel, 30 warriors, and that she was the wife of Uriah, also an honorable man who was a part of his 30 men. The Bible depicting both men as men of valor and honor, including the fact that she was a married woman. He says, what does he say? Oh, no, not going to go there. Thank, guys, thank you so much for, for just letting me know that I shouldn't go there. No, the text very completely states otherwise. Verse 4, so David sent messengers to get her, paraphrasing her in a certain way, and when she came to him, he had sex with her. Okay? Now think about this. Something to recognize uh, in this area. These verses through the years, at times, have been used to teach about modesty, that well, a woman should be modest, or that Bathsheba was complicit in the affair, in the affair and that she enticed David. And part of this message, part of the narrative being that, and so if she wasn't there, David wouldn't have lusted after her, thus causing him to stumble his way into sin. Well, there's a few things, I think, that are wrong with that narrative. So from the roof he saw a woman bathing, right? Verse 2. Where was David? He was on the roof, right? Where was Bathsheba? The Bible doesn't say. So what do we assume? We assume that Bathsheba is on a roof somewhere. Well, she probably most likely was in her, her home, in a courtyard of her home, where this is the way homes were set up at this time. What does it, in a, what does it say about her? What was she doing? She was bathing. And we learned that she was ceremonially bathing and washing herself, something that women did and this time after their menstrual cycle every single month. And so David was watching her while she is ceremonially washing. And at times, uh, the way the ceremonial washing is done as you, as you, as you peel back into history is it's simply a pouring over water um, uh, with, with clothing and removing parts of clothing and this happening here. And so David Gunn, a pastor, he said this. He said, Bathsheba, Bathsheba was not tempting David. She was not being immodest. She was not trying to get his attention. She was following the Jewish law and doing what every other woman did every month in the semi-privacy of their home or courtyard. And in some cases, uh, in some cities, there were public places that the women went to um, to do this together. But what's important to understand is this, is that no one in the Bible blames Bathsheba for what happened. No one. Not even David. David didn't blame and say that Bathsheba had tempted him. Nathan, as we will see later, doesn't in the story uh, that he gives us about uh, the lamb, the ewe, the innocent lamb. God didn't place any blame on Bathsheba, absolutely none at all. Everywhere in the story, the Bible puts the blame on David's shoulder. But somehow we have morphed stories about Bathsheba and, uh, and what her role was in this. Did she have a role? Yes, she had a role. 
but art and Renaissance art and things like that, you know, we have these pictures of a naked a, a woman and that in an enticing manner. And so I'm just not so sure uh, that that is the picture that is being drawn here. And so the Bible makes it clear that this sin is David's here. David took the initiative throughout the entire time, throughout the encounter here. He plays the active role in this story. He saw Bathsheba. He sent someone to find out about her. He then sent messengers after he found out about her to get her, and then he slept with her. So he saw, he sent, and he slept with her. And then it went bad, as we will see. Uh, he sinned even further. But most importantly, God himself puts the blame on David, which we'll come across in the story. In verse 27, if you're to go down a little bit, or in, and, and also in chapter 12, it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And, in, um, and the word, the original word means, or was evil in the sight of the Lord. So why does this matter? It matters because this is not the story of a godly man who was led astray by a seductive woman. It's the story of a godly man who fell into sin because he was led astray and he was enticed by his own evil desires. James chapter 1, 13 through 15 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his or her own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so what we witnessed of David here is the anatomy of sin, which is, has been there from all of, of eternity, all the time, especially in the area of sexual sin, uh, which is brought to light today because that's what's in the text and that's what we're talking about here. But let's be real. Sin, uh, it can be very enticing. It can, it can seem like fun. It can have endless possibility. Somebody said this, said, let's be honest, sin can be a lot of fun. We don't rush towards it because it's painful, but because it seems to be so promising. Sin almost always begins with a thrill, with a rush, with fun. But ultimately, it always leads to the same place. Brokenness, agony, disappointment, despair, and shame. And this is especially true of sexual sin. So back to David here. Consider the number of red flags that were thrown in David's face. Like, hello, David. Just hold your horses here for a second. And so we have these, these red flags that show up in the story. David should have seen them, and it should have stopped him. First of all, it was a chance encounter that David's eyes fell upon Bathsheba that evening. And he should have known not to lust after a woman who was not his wife. And so that's the first flag. She is not my wife. I should not be lusting after her. Her identity as the granddaughter of David's counselor and the daughter of one of his bodyguards should have let him know, hey, back off. Her being the wife of a member of his royal guard should have been a red flag, reminding David that she was off limits even to the king. Yet the king followed his desires, and he changed the course of history. So I want to say some tough things that, that here that are real and are true, that David's story compels us to talk about. What is true of sin generally is especially true of sexual sin. It's because it is so powerful and it can be so destructive. And yet, it is so easy to stumble into and easy to access that it can bring the strongest believer to a place of ruin. After all, it compromised David, a man after God's own heart. And where it ultimately lands, as with any sin, not just sexual sin, is ultimate shame. And what does shame do? Shame keeps us trapped in lies about who we are. And shame keeps us from confessing things. 
And shame, believe it or not, shame is a tool of the enemy to drive us into even more shame because we feel so bad and we, we can't believe that God loves us and likes us. And so the only way to take care of that is to, uh, is to go into more sin. And just a, a quick side note here, you know, sin can come, you know, no matter what it is here, when things are going really well in our lives. Isn't that, have you ever found that to be true? David was doing okay. I mean, he was winning wars, God's with him, things are happening, uniting kingdom, all kinds of things are, are going well here, but yet this creeped up into David's life. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book on temptation, said this about temptation. He said this, In our members, uh, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame or power or greed for money. In this moment, God is quite unreal to us. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelopes the mind and will of a man in deepest darkness. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. And therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there is one command. Flee. Flee fornication. Flee idolatry. Flee youthful lust. Flee the lust of the world. There is no resistance to Satan in lust other than flight. Every struggle against lust in one's own strength is doomed to failure. Now some would call this um, legalism. I just call it knowing the power of sin and the weakness of me. Pretty powerful. In David's case, it's, the result is adultery. And I think it's important to point out, as does the New Testament, and, and what I'll say next is true with any number of issues, such as anger, um, as with many sins, that it's not just the physical act which is so important for us to understand. Tim Chester, in, in his commentary, spells out what it looks like as he explains th that there are three types of adultery. Once again, you can replace um, adultery with anger, covetousness, lying, stealing, whatever it might be. The first one is spiritual adultery. The Bible talks about our relationship with Christ as a marriage. We're united to him just as a man and a woman are united in marriage. So to replace love for Christ with something or someone else is spiritual adultery. The sign of this is that we disobey Christ. We put something else first because that thing matters more to us than Christ. At least that's not as bad as literal adultery, you may say, but actually it's worse. To betray um, someone you love, your spouse, is terrible, but to betray God is worse. Here's the thing. Because spiritual adultery is the root of all other sins. You're opening a Pandora's box of sin. The second one is heart adultery. Heart adultery is one specific form of adultery. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so uh, you can commit adultery, no matter, once again, whatever it is here, without having sexual relations, uh, an indulged infatuation, a fantasy fair, a lustful undressing uh, of, uh, with your eyes, um, looking at pornography, whatever it is. This can happen, a heart adultery. And of course, the third one being uh, physical adultery. So let's pick up the story. These are cool mugs, huh? And they, yeah. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have one for you, okay? It's not filled with water, though, okay? 
All right, so let's pick up the story. The story continues, and this is where, if it weren't bad enough, if David really was not already in a pickle, it gets worse, all right? It gets worse. David is panicking at this point, and a cover-up ensues, and a cover-up begins. So in verse 5, Bathsheba sends David the, quote, I'm late message. Yeah, and he knows what that means, that she has conceived. And so in, in 5, it says that, uh, um, let's see if I can pick it up here, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And so these words are not even out of the mouth of, of David, and he begins to act, he begins to already act the covenant, because he must, perhaps he, he was figuring, man, something might be going wrong here. So David sent word to Joab in verse 6, if you're following along there, to send up Uriah. Uriah is out in the battlefront, Bathsheba's husband to him. And you know, if this wasn't such a terrible situation, a terrible thing that's going on that was happening, it was about to happen. It strikes me, you guys, if you've heard me a little bit, there's so many things in the Bible that I just like, wow, that are a little humorous to me, even in the midst of, of, of things that are so tough. You know, the lengths that we go to protect ourselves and the things we do. And so David here, he invites Uriah over for some tea. You know, not really, but just look at verse 7 here. Look at verse 7. It, it says that when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And in my mind, it's a picture. They're sitting down, and they're having a cup of tea together, and, and David is asking Joab, so is that one lump or two lumps? Oh, okay, good, 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 good. So, so tell me, how, how's, how's Joab doing? You doing okay? Yeah. He's still alive, right? Oh, yeah, good. Bless his heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, how about, how about the people? How, how are they doing? How, besides the ones that are dead, that, that died. How are they, they doing okay? They getting enough to eat? They sleeping okay? They, they, they on, on each other's team? Oh, that's, that's, that's great. That's great. And the war? The war? How's the war doing? We doing okay? We winning? It's good? Do you need anything else? Do you need any help? And, uh, and so, but I mean, but look at that. He's asking them these, these, these weird questions. He brings them in because he has something else in mind. He is conniving. He's trying to cover up something that has happened. And so he asks them the question, and, and then he, he puts his arm around him and says, hey, buddy, listen, I, I'd really like for you to, you know, why don't you go down to your house? And, you know, why don't you be with your wife? You know, be with your wife. And, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. You've earned it. You've been out there. You're one of my, my top 30 guys there, and I want you to go there. But it sounds ridiculous, but, but, but is it the lengths that we can go uh, to, to cover up things that have happened in our, in our lives? So instead of reading all the rest of these verses, let me paraphrase here. Basically, David sinned big time, right? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, somebody else's wife. She became pregnant. David tried to cover it up. He urged Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, his loyal soldier, to go home, spend time with his wife so that nobody could find out that the child was actually David, hoping that he would have sex and that everybody would think that it was Uriah's child. Something happened. He did not take the bait. He did not sleep with her. He did not go there. And so when that didn't succeed, David plotted to have Uriah killed in the battle by sending him to the front lines, pulling people back so that he might die. And so Uriah died, and so it looked like a heroic death, and he could, he could spin it that way, and no one suspected anything. And then, after, and then David married the grieving widow in a sympathetic, heroic move because he felt such compassion after, she, after, she, um, uh, after this had happened. And so the plan was perfect. Everything is covered, nobody knows. But we know better, don't we? We looked at verse 27, which ends with this verdict from God, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Again, the Hebrew word literally means to be evil in the eyes of the Lord. So how could this be possible? How could a godly man like David fall to such this, this level of deceit ultimately entering, ending in murder? I mean, think, think about this. When David... Woke up, he wasn't thinking, hey, you know what? Checking his to-do list. I think I need to commit adultery today. 
The day he saw Bathsheba, it wasn't like, hey, I think I'll break my marriage vow. I think I'll enjoy that woman. And, and then you know what? If things just don't go well, I think I will kill her husband. No. The sin began incrementally. And that's how it works, right? It presents its temptations. It comes to us slowly, subtly, insidiously, and deceitfully. And the thing is, is we don't see how deeply we get entangled in sin until it's too, too late. And oftentimes it starts just with a little thing. And then before you know it, we're trapped. And not only that, When this begins, we really don't think about the secondary costs of sin, the consequences upon, that's going to happen to us and especially to others who are innocent in this. There is always collateral damage when we sin. We may not know it at the time, but it can affect generations as it did David's. Sin and temptation, they blur the facts. It, seems, it always seems more easier, more beautiful, and less costly than what the reality is of what sin can do in our lives. In our, in our thought process, nobody gets hurt by it. Nobody, it's just me. I'm just doing this to myself. But in reality, everyone is, is hurt in your realm and some hurts as i said some hurts become generational as did david's the cost can be immense as it was in david's case in the end of david's issues it would cause the union of israel he had woven to bring together to unravel four of his sons died and so there was quite a cost there yet yet listen to this there was something about David's heart that God loved, whatever his flaws were. There was something there. And there was something in your heart that God loves regardless of your flaws. Regardless. There, there, is, there is that. He is in you. And here's something that he loves regardless of what you have done. And so we have in the midst of this serious struggle emerges a picture of the surprising grace of God as God invades David's mess and invites him into restoration. See, David is, is like, he's stuck in his mess that he has created. And at this point, he thinks that he's gotten away with it. He's done everything he can. He did all the right things. And only a few people really know what had happened, right? Joab, David himself, uh, you know, Bathsheba, they're the ones that only needed to know what really happened besides that other guy we talked about earlier. It's his secret sin. Now, will you allow me to pry into our lives here, just learning from David? Maybe, possibly, this is where you are today. Maybe not at the level of David. Maybe so. But you've been hiding something. You've been hiding things from others. And it's been eating you up. It's been taking a toll maybe even for a very long time. Or maybe the story has reminded you of some things that you haven't thought about in a while that you have hidden. And if I may so gently pursue this, this with you, can I ask you, what might be your secret sin? What is the Holy Spirit telling you now? What might be your secret sin? Do you have a secret sin? You might not. You might not. That's fine. Obviously, that's fine. <laughs> but it can be small or it can be big. Maybe you've been lying to your parents. Maybe you've lied to your parents or friends or spouse about something. It could, it could, be, it could be anything. I'm trusting that God is working in your hearts right now. So how do you hide it from those that love you? 
how do you how do you do that what do you have to do to make sure that it never sees the light of day once again it could just be a lie what are the things you have to do to tell yourself that it's okay or maybe it's something else that you've just you've worked it out where nobody's going to find out how long have you been hiding it and what are the results of this hiding what toll is it taking on you in your relationships in your relationship with god Listen to how it affected David in Psalm uh, 32, verses uh, 3 and 4 here. And this is a psalm where, where, where David was just, he begins it by saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So he's understanding that God has forgiven him here. But in verse 3 and verse 4, he says this, for when I kept silent, and this is about this situation that has occurred in David's life, and he says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And that's because he knew. He knew it was there. He knew what he had done. We know the things that we have hidden from others and from what we think we have hidden from God. So getting back to David where he you know, he feeling, he's feeling like, man, I got all my bases covered. This is, this is good. The sobering truth is that we can never cover all of our bases because we know eventually, and you've heard this a million times, that sin somehow, eventually, in some way, in some weird place, finds us out. Somebody else did know what really happened, right? Yeah, God knew. And he stated his opinion of the fair once again, but the thing that David did, but the thing that David did was evil my sight so how does how does god reach into david's mess how does he get there you know how he gets there he pursues david he sends nathan the prophet let's look at chapter 12 verses uh, 1 through 7 let's read that give you just a second you should be very close to that and the lord sent nathan to david he came to him and he said to him, and here's the story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. I can't say that word. I'm sorry. I just can't say it. Which he had bought. And he, uh, and he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it, that means he killed it, for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And then in verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. It's crazy. Nathan goes on to recount, you know, what God had done for David, all that he'd done, and what was going to happen. So when I was reading this and I was studying this section of Scripture, I came across a statement that hit me pretty hard. And I think it might hit you a little bit hard too. And it was this. It says, have you ever been shattered by the Word of God? Have you ever been shattered by the Word of God? He went on to say, some of us have become so familiar with the Word of God, or at least we think it's familiar to us, that God's Word never disturbs us. We read our Bibles, perhaps we study our Bibles, we listen to Bible talks, we listen to sermons by guys named Rich, and life goes on. But we would not say that the Word of God shattered us. Here in chapter 12, God's Word shattered David. And so you sense the drama of this moment of what's happening here. The history behind this is, is immense. What goes on from here is not a pretty picture as we'll find coming in the next few weeks. As God, through Nathan, proclaims to, to David, said, you are 
the man. And so Nathan goes on to show David that that God knows everything that he's done, everything that he tried to hide, and lists the consequences for him. Folks, what I'm going to say next, we need to get. We need to get. We can't miss this. This is God's grace breaking into David's mess. Yes, grace has many faces, and it's not all soft and fluffy, okay? Grace is hard at times. It chases us down. It pursues, and it exposes because it has an end in mind. And that what it has an end in mind is this. It has forgiveness. It has restoration. It has healing. And it has freedom. That's God's grace chasing us down. See, friends, grace started before you and I were ever born. You want to know how, how hard grace pursues you? In the death of an innocent, sinless man by the name of Jesus, who died in your place, in my place, so that grace could be offered to us. It's not always fun, but it's done because God loves us. God reaches into any situation, no matter how difficult, and he offers us grace. This is a lesson we've got to learn, we've got to understand. Somebody asked, what if grace did not pursue us? What if grace did pursue? What if God abandoned us when we succeeded at sin? Let that hang there for a second. What if God abandoned us when we succeeded at sin? He says, I'm done with you. That, I tried. You're on your own. I hope it works out well for you. No. What was David's response when, when grace pursued him here? His response was that I have sinned against the Lord. What was God's response to David's repentance? He said, you are forgiven. The Lord has taken away your sin. Can I tell you a story? If you say no, I'm going to tell it to you anyways. And I believe this story is where we see God's grace busting into someone's life. This happened just a couple days ago. And um, it happened to my wife, Erin. And I had her just write things down so I wouldn't mess it up. And uh, so she was driving. She's on 23. Uh, and it's not this story. <laughs> it's not this story. <laughs> but if you want to come up, and that, that's fine. It's fine. <laughs> okay, nobody watch him walk. Okay, here we go. <laughs> okay, but okay. So I got to get. I got to get through this. Okay, because um, I'm taking a long time. Um, anyway, she was in an accident. Okay, she got rear-ended, and. Um, uh, and so she pulls into this parking lot. Um, it, it was a big truck. She got hit hard. She expected there to be all kinds of damage. Uh, thankfully, there wasn't damage. We could see a little license plate here and, um, in it. And so the guy gets out, and he's a big dude. He's a big guy. And uh, he was nervous, of course. And Aaron thought, he thought that he might be drunk. Um, but he waited. She didn't, uh, she didn't say anything. And so he wanted to get, she wanted to get uh, his name and information. Um, which is good, right? Get the information. Um, but he didn't want to give it to, to her because, hey, man, why, do, why should I give you that? There's no damage. And I said, hey, my, my, she pulled this one, this card here. My husband used to be an insurance agent, okay, right? And just to be safe. And so he finally did. Uh, and then she said this. She said, are you okay? And he says, he says, fine. And she says, you're not okay. And he says, I'm just tired. And then Aaron pulls a Nathan, pulls a Nathan on him. And she says, you're drunk. You're drunk. Now, this is not Aaron's nature. This is, this is not Aaron's nature at all, if you know her. And so he tried to fumble himself away from this. 
And then she said something like, you can't, you can't be doing this. You're going to hurt someone. You've got to make a change in your life. You can't do it yourself. You need help. God can help you. And then he hung his head, and he looked broken and said, I was hitting him. I was hitting him. And he held his heart. As these words were hitting his heart. And, um, and, and, and Darren said, this, you know, this is God. It is no mistake that you hit me. And then he said, this is, this is, this is one of those times. I don't know. This is, this is a, I can't get the words or whatever. And Aaron said, a divine appointment. And he goes, yeah. And so she prayed for him. And then she asked, what do you think about God? And, and he goes, I, I believe in God. I, I, I try to do good. And she said, you can't. There's nothing you can do. He did it for you. All you can do. is say, God, I need you. And he said out loud, God, I need you. And then he said, help me, I don't know what to do. My life is a mess. So Aaron grabbed the hands of this big, burly guy and prayed with him and then led him in a prayer of salvation. And he repeated everything. And he was so grateful and hugged her. Hugged her a couple times. And um, they talked more. And she said, I'd love for you to, to talk with my husband. And he said, I would really love that. And so I talked with him yesterday. And we're going to meet tomorrow. And we're going to see what the Lord does. And that was a Nathan moment. That's what God does. God enters our messes. He chases us. He pursues us in our messes. We can try to hide. We can try to cover it up. But he pursues us. I can't see. <laughs> oh, I don't know where I am. So David here, God's grace entering into his mess. And uh, the Lord has taken away your sin. Now you might say, that that's too easy. That's too easy. Hey, he did all this. I mean, did he do some pretty heavy stuff? I mean, it was pretty bad. And then he, Nathan says, hey, you're the man. He says, hey, busted. Um, will you forgive me? Um, and he confesses and God forgives him. And we might say that's easy, but... What I'll say about that is that I trust God that in that moment, true unabated repentance is required, and that is what God heard from David. I mean, in, it, let me just read verses 3 and 4 in, uh, in Psalm 51, which is describing um, this time here in David's life. And in verse uh, um, 3 and 4, he says this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother concede? He knew and he confessed. So that aside, what I want you to see is this, okay? God did not come to do, condemn him. He came to forgive him. And so grace came rushing in. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All of it. Proverbs 28, 13 says whoever conceals their sins doesn't prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And in James chapter 5, talking about community, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, consider this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I want you to notice that word cover here. In reading through this and thinking through this, um, I was reminded of what this looked like, and I want to be able to, to, to put it here in, in words. See, when we ask forgiveness from God, when we repent, um, unlike you know, David who was concocting and covering up what he had, had done here, there is a covering that is made available to us. And this covering for us 
What it actually is, is it's a covering of grace. It's a covering of mercy, a cover of mercy. And it happens when we confess our sins. It's the forgiveness of our sin when we receive, that we receive when we turn back to God. Because the truth is only God can do this. Only God can cover this sin. Somebody else can. And he did that through Jesus Christ. Yes, we do need to talk with one another. Yes, we need to confess to one another. But, they, but friends cannot remove sin, cannot cover it. Only God can. We must bring it before God. Think about this. Back in Genesis, Adam and Eve first, you know, sinned. What happened, okay? They sinned and then they admitted it. And what did God do? He made a covering for them. He made garments of skin as coverings for them in verse, uh, chapter 3, 21. And so this is the first shedding of blood. In Hebrews 9, 22, it says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So follow, follow, follow this here. If only God can deal with this, can deal with our sin, then David must come back to God. And so what happens? God steps in, in verse 1 in chapter 12, the Lord sends Nathan to David. And once again, did you catch this? It's so important. God initiated the move and stepped into David's mess. Just like us, friends. Okay? Back in the garden, in the beginning, Adam and Eve, right? God came and stepped into their mess, into our mess. David, he kept silent, and God came. This is the grace of God, folks. This is the gospel message. God initiated the move to reconcile you and me and the world to him. And what was his purpose? And what is his purpose? In this case, for David here, it's to save David from from his sin, from the guilt, and from the shame of sin. Folks, he is willing to step into our mess. This was killing David, as we talked about in Psalm 32. Remember he said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. But God wants to restore him. Restore him. You know why? Because he wasn't finished with David. God wants to restore in you and me. You know why? Because he's not finished with us. Mm-mm. God didn't come to shame him. God didn't come to condemn him. God didn't come to lay guilt on him. Jesus says in John 3, 17, God did not send me into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Do we believe this? Can we dare to believe that God's grace is real? Can you dare to believe that God in some way is delighted to step into your mess? Does he really love me? That much? Friends, God's grace is messy. It's messy because it enters into our mess. God is beyond willing to get into our messes. His grace, Him, He breaks through in the midst of this. And now, worship team, you may come up. Um, and I want to paraphrase a story. We're just we're going to finish here. See, folks, God invites us into His room of grace, and I want you to think of a room of grace here. He shows it. He presents it to us. There's an opening to get into it. And it's as if we have to walk into that room. It's there inviting us. And, and yes, in a weird way, it's difficult to walk over that threshold into it because we don't believe that we deserve it. But in that room is where the reality of our created lives really lives. And there's a silent message there. It's where... The message says this. This is where God is. He's happy with you. He's delighted with you. Where he is wild about you, regardless of the mess that you've got yourself into or, or how you see yourself. In this room of grace, by the way, where there's other, lots of other people, they seem to believe that God loves them 
and likes them even when they mess up. God speaks to you in this room and he whispers to you, I am, I really am big enough to handle your stuff. I, I really am. All of it. It doesn't surprise me and it doesn't shock me. And it's where he says that I am crazy in love with you even on your very worst day. He says, I just want you to trust me with who I say you are. And I want you to learn to let other people, your community, love you with all your stuff. It will free you to love like him because you will have experience being loved by him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, thank you that you are not afraid of us. You're not afraid of our lives. You're not afraid of what we've done. You're not afraid of our messes. Lord, thank you that you're willing to, to come and to reach and to offer and to forgive. Thank you that is possible because you sent your Jesus, you sent your son Jesus Christ to step into the mess, to die for our messes, yet to be raised again, to give us life everlasting. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us this morning. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit has been, been speaking to our hearts. There are things that we've been hiding, things that we're afraid of to bring to you, messes that we find ourselves in that we're just afraid to talk to somebody or you about. Lord, I pray that you'd give us, my friends, the strength uh, to enter into those conversations with you and with their friends. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.